Amen. Amen. Well, hello there. If you are homebound because you're snowbound, uh, that's not so bad. It's great to have uh, some good snow here in the Capital District. We've not had much this year. But we're excited that you're a part of worship experience today, whether live in a sanctuary or whether listening online. And let me begin by asking you a question here. Are you, are you a blessed person? You know, I hear that word a lot these days. Just a few days ago, I saw it on a church sign driving down the road over in Schenectady area. I saw on a church sign, have a blessed and grace-filled new year. This word is everywhere. I hear it from the mouths of coaches who've just won a national championship. When being interviewed about the great victory they just won, they'll say, well, I just want to say this is all the blessing of God. Nobody could write a story like this. We are so blessed. I hear it from athletes all the time. When interviewed after a game where they just went off and had a spectacular performance, they'll say, well, let me just say, we are blessed. God gave us the victory. And this word blessed really gets around. I mean, it's on bumper stickers and hats and t-shirts. For instance, have you seen this little saying? Too blessed to be stressed. Have you seen that one? Man, that's, that's the one I want to get on, in on right there. Because I want to tell you, I am really, really blessed, but I'm stressed, okay? So I want to get the kind of blessing where it just eliminates the stress, if you know what I mean. Are you a blessed person? Centuries ago, when God called Abraham into a covenant relationship with him, he said something to Abraham that has become a paradigm. It is literally a model of what God wants to do with all of his people in every generation. And it's just as much the model today as it was when God first said it to Abraham. Here's what he said. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the paradigm. Did you catch it? There's two big parts to it. Don't miss these. One is, I will bless you. The second part, you will be a blessing. The first part has to happen first. God wants to do in our lives some extraordinary things. He wants his character, for instance, to be seen in us. He wants to bless us with all of his fullness. But it doesn't stop there. It never stops with being blessed. It always goes on to, God says, look, I want you to be a blessing. In other words, you're to be a channel, not a clog. You're to be a river, not a reservoir. When I bless you, I always do it in a purposeful way. I want you to be a blessing to people around you. And so for two 
brief weeks, I want us to do a little series called Blessed to be a Blessing, where we will unpack some of what it means to be blessed by God. This thing that God calls us into, and that he called Abraham into, is called the abundant life. It's rich with promise and potential and possibilities. And there's a verse that really has come to mean a lot to me, and if you have a Bible of your own or a portable device where you can find this, I would urge you to find right now 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. And by the way, if you're looking for uh, two or three verses that would be well worth your time to memorize, all God's word is God-breathed, all of it is special, but not necessarily verses you would want to memorize. Here are some verses you'd want to memorize. Uh, These are incredible. And here's where we're going to camp out today, specifically on verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. It reads like this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's talking to those who are rich in this world. Now, since the poorest in America have it better than 95% of the people in the world, this passage applies to all of us. And so I want us to consider today three aspects of what it means to be blessed to be a blessing. Point number one, let's talk about the definition of being blessed. Let's camp there for a moment. The word blessed is used so much, but what does it really mean? Well, I pulled out my old Noah Webster dictionary. Yep, the big one, the huge one from 1828. The American Dictionary of the English Language that has been the standard for generations of Americans. And I'm going to quote now. Here's what blessed means according to that classic dictionary. Quote, happy, prosperous in worldly affairs, enjoying spiritual happiness and the favor of God, enjoying heavenly felicity. Now, I want to zero in on that part now about the favor of God. Moses prayed in Psalm 90 for the favor of God to rest upon him and his people. And that God would establish the work of their hands. Blessing is largely about being in the favor of God. And a huge part of that is that he provides for our needs. By the way, it's exactly what that verse said that we read a minute ago. 1 Timothy 6, 17. God provides us with everything. Now, one of the basic principles taught consistently throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is that God owns everything we don't, and he chooses to bless us by entrusting some things in our care for us to manage. Psalm 24, 1 reads, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In other words, I speak about my car, my house, my job, my vocation, 
my body, my talent, my ministry. But in reality, none of those things are mine. They're all God's. He just loans them to me for a few short years, and then they're going to return to him. What a humbling thought that is. But it's an important one if we're going to understand what it means to be truly blessed by God. Jesus taught a parable about a farmer who had a bumper crop. And as I read this brief story, I want you to try to notice how many times this rich man talks about myself or I or my, and then see how the Lord responds to him. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get (coughs) what you've prepared for yourself? You see, all of those crops didn't belong to him. They were simply on loan from God, and God was about to call them back in. And Jesus ended this gripping story by saying, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. So the first thing we're saying here, if you're really a blessed person, if we really want to understand that, it means that Christians think radically differently in a radically different way about material things. And we understand deeply in our soul that we're simply managing them, and one day God's going to call us to account for how we managed. I'm always curious every year about wealthy and or influential people who pass away. And, well, 2018 certainly had its share of wealthy and well-known people who died. Let me mention a few of them. Tim Bergling, also better known probably as DJ Avicii. Uh, He was one of the most successful touring DJs in the industry. Even if you listen to radio only just sporadically, you've probably heard at least one of his great hits, Wake Me Up, Levels, among many others. He died at the age of 28. Paul Allen, does that ring a bell? The multi-billionaire, co-founder of Microsoft, died on October 15th at the young age of 65. When most of us think of personal computing, we think of Bill Gates. And certainly with Microsoft, the name Bill Gates comes to mind first, but upon his death, Bill Gates lauded Paul Allen by saying, personal computing would not have existed without him. And then we had two people who committed suicide close Together, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died within three days of each other. Very young, age 61 and 65, respectively. They were both creatives, made significant marks in their field. Bourdain as a chef, Kate Spade in designing, mostly known for her innovative handbags. And then there was the political power couple who passed away, 
George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush, who served as the 41st President and First Lady of the U.S. Last week, I mentioned Marvel Comics and what an amazing turnaround story it was. Well, in 2018, one of the founding writers died. His name was Stan Lee. He was a part of that team that created characters like Superman and Iron Man and Wolverine. And then Kofi Annan passed away. Nobel Peace Prize winner, the first black African to lead the United Nations, died on August 18th at the age of 80. And then there was the Queen of Soul who passed away, Aretha. Wow, what a singer. Aretha Franklin with hits like R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Respect, and Chain of Fools, and so many others. She will never be forgotten. Passed away at the age of 76. And the list goes on and on. Some of them young, some of them old, but all of them stood before God. They all have to give an account. The Bible says it's appointed to every person once to die, and after that, the judgment. And I want us all to understand that our evaluation isn't just, did we go to church? Did we use bad language? It's a very holistic thing. How did we manage the one and only life with all the things in it that God entrusted to us? He wants us to be good stewards of what he's given us. Years ago, there was an amazing course used by so many churches throughout the nation and it was called Good Sense Budget Course. And it gives the following definition of a good steward, undoubtedly one of the best I've ever heard. A good steward is a diligent earner, a generous giver, a wise saver, a cautious debtor, and a prudent consumer. Now, just think about that list and ask yourself, is that me? Do you earn money honestly, or are you lazy and bury your talent in the ground? Do you give it away generously, as the definition says? In the Old Testament, the standard was 10%. I, I believe that with all we've been given in this new covenant, we ought to think more than that. Are you generous? And are you prudent enough to save, much like the ant stores up for winter? But you do that without becoming a hoarder and hoarding it all on yourself. Or as the definition goes on, do you seldom go into debt? Only very advisedly. Or do you waste 18% interest on credit cards frequently? And do you buy wisely? Or are you more of a compulsive buyer who just collects a bunch of things you don't really need? One thing we all must understand is that we're stewards. And one day we'll all be called to give an account for how we handled God's money. God, this verse says, provides us with everything. That's a part of what it means to be a blessed person, to understand God is the owner. We are the managers. But there's a second thing I want us to see about 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, which, again, has become one of my favorite sections in Scripture because to me, boy, so much of what life is about is summed up 
in verses 17, 18, and 19. Now I want us to consider the dangers of being blessed. Newsflash. Did you know it's not all upsides when you're a blessed person? Did you know there's actually dangers in being blessed? Cotton Mather, the Puritan leader, was alarmed by the materialism of his day. And he made this quote. It is a classic. He said, religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. Religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. That's profound. What is he saying there? He's saying that when you become a Christian, listen now, usually there's an upward mobility that goes with that. Why? Why? Is it because of all God's kids are rich? No, 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 hang on. Usually you're more economically prosperous when you become a true believer because bad habits begin to fall away. You become wiser in the way you live. You usually start understanding good stewardship, so you save appropriately, usually work harder, usually have better work habits and so on. You usually make better decisions, and so there's a sort of economic prosperity. This is easy to prove, by the way. Virtually every culture where Christianity has come in has an upward mobility about it. It brings prosperity. But here's the double edge of that sword. Usually the second and third generations can't handle the prosperity. And sometimes the daughter even devours the mother in the first generation. Sometimes prosperity is really hard to handle. Not many people can carry a full cup. And that's the assumption behind this verse here that we're looking at today, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Increased money brings increased dangers into your life in the form of temptations. The verse says again, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. One of the temptations is to arrogance. If you... Evaluate a person's worth by what they have and you have more than somebody else, you may be tempted to look down on them in a condescending way. You can feel superior because you have things that are nicer. Roughly 20 years ago, I'll never forget the conversation, I sat in the office of a very wealthy business man in the area. He had come from nothing. He was literally an immigrant who had showed up just with a positive attitude and a desire to work and had literally built a business empire here in the capital region. Virtually everyone knew of him. Now he had a reputation of having built this multi, 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 multi-million dollar empire by stepping on people. I don't know if it was true or not, but that was a reputation. God help you if you got in his way. That was the reputation. I don't know if it's true, but that he would crush people if it meant getting an edge and getting superiority over them. And I'll never forget the conversation because we talked for about an hour and a half and he kept referring to these riffraff and lowlifes. That phrase kept coming, riffraff and lowlifes, as he would go on rants. And I soon realized that what he was talking about was poor people. 
And I thought, my, how ironic that you would think so lowly of people who are at the same place that you started. But it's easy for us to do. Success and wealth can breed arrogance. If we're not careful, we can begin to strut and feel superior. Proverbs 16 says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. But a second temptation mentioned here is false security. It says, command them not to put their hope in wealth, because that would be a false security, you see. It's so uncertain, but rather to put their hope in God. I meet a lot of pretty well-off people, but they're paranoid about it. They've come to realize there's no way I'm ever going to be secure or feel like I've got enough. Tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, terrorist attacks, lawsuits can bring down an empire in minutes. It happens over and over again. And so they're paranoid that I can't even buy enough insurance to insure all of these things. Proverbs 11 says, when a wicked man dies, his hope perishes. All he expected from his power comes to nothing. And that's the way it is for any person. If they're putting their hope in how many things they can accumulate. I have really been ministered to this year by Psalm 62. I just, I chose to memorize it on a vacation week that I had back in the summer, and I'm telling you, it just keeps feeding my soul. Listen to what verse 10 says, though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Isn't that good? Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. That's not where your security is. So there's these dangers that go with wealth. It's hard to keep up with the Joneses. One guy said, how in the world can I get out of debt if my neighbor keeps buying things I can't afford? (laughs) There's all kinds of insecurities often that accompany wealth and money. So I ask you again today, are you a blessed person? And if the answer to that is yes, you need to remember this. Please remember this. That's wonderful. Oh, good for you. But prosperity is a double-edged sword. Not many people can handle it. We won't read it now, but just a few verses before the one we're looking at today Paul writes that people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So we've seen the definition. It means the favor of God, the owner, entrusting things to us to manage. He provides these things to us. But second, we've got to be realistic and see there's dangers that come with that. We can start putting our hope in these things. We can see it as a false security. We can also become very arrogant. But I want to wrap this up today by looking at a final principle, and that is the delights of being blessed. I was a little surprised 
To be honest with you, when I looked that up in the 1828 dictionary, Noah Webster, I figured it would all kind of have churchy language about it, you know, because the nation was really different then. And our dictionaries classically reflect some of the values and views of the current culture. And so I was a little shocked when Webster's definition of blessed emphasized worldly prosperity and happiness. I didn't even think the word happiness would show up in his definition before I looked it up. I don't know if you caught it or not, but I expected the favor of God to be what it was all about. But twice Webster mentioned that the blessed person is enjoying something. The blessings of God are to be enjoyed. And by the way, that's totally consistent again with the verse we're camping out on today. Let me read it one more time. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who, catch this part now, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Did you know, did you know that God gives us some material possessions and blessings and a part of the thing he wants from that is our enjoyment. He wants us to enjoy it. God is pleased when we enjoy his bounty and kindness to us. Wow. Now let's pause right there. I feel I have to pause right there. Because wow, this teaching has really been abused by a lot of the health and wealth preachers in America. Let's just acknowledge that. So let's be crystal clear before we go another step. This is not saying that godly people are always wealthy and ungodly people are always poor. Some of the most godly people in history have been very wealthy and some of the most godly people have been very, very poor. And some of the most wicked people in history have been incredibly wealthy and some of the most wicked have been incredibly poor. There is not a direct and clear correlation, in other words, between one's level of wealth and one's moral righteousness. I hope, I hope, I hope we all understand that. Second, he's not saying here, when he says God gives us these things for our enjoyment, that God's ultimate pleasure is that we would just take these things and blow them frivolously. I hope you know, I hope you would accept that that's not what this means. So what is it saying when he says God gives us everything for our enjoyment? He's not talking about living indulgently and extravagantly and ignoring the poor and ignoring legitimate needs. But he's saying, I believe, if you've made your money honestly, if you've given generously, if you've saved prudently, there comes a time when it's perfectly right. God gets a kick out of it when you enjoy it. As Dave Ramsey in Financial Peace University might say, when you've lived like no one else, listen, there comes a time when it's okay for you to live like no one else. Hallelujah. But can I make a confession to that? Will you guys be my therapist? 
I struggle with that. Partially because of the way I grew up, I really have trouble enjoying nice things. Sometimes I feel guilty if I spend money just beyond the basic necessities of life. Why? Well, I grew up in very modest circumstances in a poor family. So again, you're my therapist, right? And if I'm out eating in a really nice restaurant and I see somebody from church, I feel like I have to start making excuses right away. Oh, gift certificate. Yeah. Somebody, oh, praise God. Somebody gave us a nice, oh, we don't come here often. Oh, somebody gave us a nice gift certificate. That's why we're eating at this nice place. Or if, if we go to a beach community near the ocean I, and somebody finds out about it, I, I feel like I have to like defend it and give all these caveats. Oh, we've got some wonderful friends that let us use their house there or else we wouldn't be going. Why do I do that? Because I need therapy, that's why. <laughs> I need therapy. Honestly, I need to get over that. But it's there. It's there. I need to get me one of those t-shirts that says, too blessed to be stressed. That's what I need because I stress about things like that. Now, why do I do that? A part of it is I just really want to represent God well. And I know there are a lot of eyes on me, just as there are any Christian leader. I want to make wise choices. But a part of it is this false guilt and some of you are probably just as bad as me, that you just have trouble enjoying God's goodness, right? Now, let's admit, there's always gonna be judgment calls, and sometimes it's hard to know what's appropriate and what's not. John Gray has created an incredible controversy when he bought his wife a new sports car. Pastor John Gray reads, leads Relentless Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and he's a frequent guest on a TV reality show, a popular media preacher, a very good communicator, but over the past couple of months, wow, he's been in a firestorm. He's been lambasted on social media, media for buying his wife a $200,000 Lamborghini on the couple's eighth anniversary. And a video of the presentation of that car went viral on Instagram. And the flurry seems to be around this question, okay? Here's the question. Should a pastor, should a pastor buy a $200,000 car for his wife? Now, I don't know how you would answer that. But I think most Christians I know would say, well, probably not a wise choice. You know, probably could have used the money better for kingdom purposes. Uh, probably going to send the wrong message to some people. Probably uh, going to give people who are already cynical an opportunity to scoff even more at the gospel. And if that would be your vibe, I would tend to agree. I, but I think we need to be reminded of Romans 14, 4, which says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls, right? 
So we, we should be careful before we judge because we don't, here's why, because we don't know all the details. Maybe he inherited $100 million and gave half of it away for all I know. Highly unlikely, I realize, but you always want to be careful before you pass judgment. Only God will make the ultimate judgment of what's right and wrong, and he will. So let's be gracious with each other. $200,000. I just hope Debbie isn't getting her hopes up. That's all, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying, okay? Wow. The Bible says in James that every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And I think it brings joy to our Father's heart when we can appropriately enjoy the bounty that he has blessed us with. Now, this is going to look a bit different for different people. For some of you, maybe it would mean for you that for the first time in your life, you go out to some restaurants and you just really enjoy that experience because you didn't have to cook it and you don't have to wash those dishes and you can sit there like a king or queen and say, thank you, God, I am so blessed. If I were a king or queen, I wouldn't enjoy anything more than this. I see this as a blessing from you. I am so blessed. For some of you, enjoying God's blessings may mean that you live in a larger home than you've lived in or a second home, but you've paid your bills, you've lived responsibly, you've been very generous, and you ought to be able to say, Lord, I thank you that I'm able to live here. I delight in your kindness. I am so blessed. For probably a little handful of you, who've made maybe hundreds of thousands or maybe multiple millions of dollars and maybe you've given that much away and you've lived very responsibly and you get on a plane and you fly to Florida or to the Caribbean and you say, Lord, thank you that you've been so generous to me. Please help me to remember Pastor Rex when the appropriate time comes. Amen? Amen? But for all of us, for all of us, it means we don't envy what others have and we don't judge how others spend their money because they're accountable to God. The more you mature in the faith, the more you ought to delight in being generous and blessing other people because we are blessed to be a blessing. And our Lord taught it's more blessed to give than to receive. I've always been intrigued by the life of Paul J. Meyer. He's one of the greatest philanthropists that ever lived. He died in 2009. He lived to be 81 years old. He used to be called by some the most generous person alive. What a story. Kicked out of the house when he was 16 years old. Lived a tough life. On his, lived literally in a tent for a period of time. But he was incredibly ambitious and became the number one insurance salesman in the nation by the time he was 30 years old. Then he began to write books, wrote many books. Then he began to have training seminars for insurance people. He invested his money wisely and he became very, very wealthy. Paul Meyer. And somewhere along the way, Paul gave his life to Christ. He had a genuine conversion, 
a true disciple of Jesus, live in the life in all of its profundity. And when he was in his 70s, catch this part. This is what just thrills me. Paul J. Meyer started giving over 90% of what he earned away every year. He was uber generous to Christian causes. He's, he put over 500 young people through college. On one trip alone, he met 10 young people and offered to pay their way through college. Only one of them took him up on it because they thought he must be crazy or something. Once he was sitting with, driving with his accountant on a road where there was road construction going on. And he rolled down his window. He saw a young lady there in the hard hat and the work clothes and all that holding the stop sign. And he's, he started talking to her. And he said, young lady, why are you working construction? She said, well, I want to earn my way through college. And he said, don't your parents help? She said, well, they're not really in a position to. They would love to, but they just can't. And he said, what would you like to do with your life? And she shared, she would like to go to nursing school and become a nurse. And Paul Meyer gave her one of his cards and said, young lady, I'm in the business of making dreams come true. You call me next week and I'll pay your way through college. Sure enough, true story, his accountant says that the next week there was a call on the phone and a young lady said, there was this funny little old man last week who said that if I just call this number, he'd pay my way through college. Is that true? He kind of said, yes, it is. And Paul Meyer just beamed as he talked about that young woman who at that time then became a nurse in a Midwestern city. I ask you, wouldn't it be wonderful to live that way? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that kind of money and be able to just make it your life mission to just give it away and help people in legitimate and wonderful ways? Oh, that'd be awesome. Are you listening? It's not what you would do with the millions if you had it. It's what you're doing with what you've got right now that you do have. And the principle is when we're faithful with a few things, God puts us in charge of more and we are blessed. So I end with this. If your security, if your hope, if your self-esteem If your excitement is all about the things of this world, you're never going to be satisfied because you'll always want more. But if your excitement, your joy, if your esteem, if your identity, if your hope is in a relationship with the living God through our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, you can be blessed beyond compare, but it won't get his claws in you if you keep your eyes on Jesus and understand that he's the owner And he's called us to manage wisely what he's entrusted to our care. We are blessed to be a blessing. Father, thank you that the word you spoke to Abraham centuries ago is still the model you want to use today. You want to bless us richly. And while most of us will never have the wealth of a Paul Meyer Help us to have the same spirit and attitude 
and understand that it's more blessed to give than to receive. In Jesus' name, amen.